he's here to share with us on his expertise, uh, mm. both in life and in, uh, in his job and what he's got going on. So I encourage you guys to listen in. I am incredibly excited. I set you up really big on Facebook yesterday, so uh, no pressure, but uh, it's, 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 it's on you. Cool, thanks. Uh, I need to know, am I the only one who has almost hit a deer driving through the roads of Sudden Valley? Anybody else? Okay, am I the only one who almost hit an Ewok coming in through gate two in that little part with the trees? Anybody else? I swear I thought I saw that little furry guy running through. Um, I think it was an Ewok. Um, we are in, I'm very glad to be here, and thank you for having me. We're in the, the tail end of a section called I am in, which is what does it mean to be part of the core of Christ the King Church? And not just part of the core, but we're talking about ownership of Christ the King Church, that the, the, the core commitments that we're asking really connect to what does it mean to be a follower of Christ? And so the series has been about a personal connection with Jesus, about corporate worship, reaching out, giving, serving. And this morning I get to talk about something that is really, really deeply personal to me especially considering what my wife and I have gone through in the last two months. It's about biblical community. On February, or on July 22nd, or 27th, my wife and I were hiking in Tahoe. We were visiting family. We were with my son, uh, brother-in-law, and sister-in-law, and my nephew. And we're in um, a half mile into a hike in Tahoe. And my wife falls down. She just falls down. And her eyes are rolled back. And she's having a seizure. And she's the healthiest person in the world. She is, um, two weeks before, she ran 25 miles in the Ragnar race. If you know Katie Steele, you know that she is an energizer bunny. And she has the largest joy bucket in the world, and it's overflowing, and she never stops. And here she was, out for a minute with a seizure. My brother-in-law is a paramedic, and fortunately, uh, he's there, and he's holding her, and she's safe. The, the paramedics were 20 minutes away. We get, her to, um, we get her to the emergency room in Tahoe, and... Uh, we were hoping that this was some kind of weird symptom of, of her being pregnant because we've tr- been trying to get pregnant for a while. And instead of that, the doctor came in and said they found a, a walnut-sized brain tumor. And, and in an instant, our whole world turns upside down. The whole world in an instant. Um, it was amazing. There's so many points of God along this story. And in the same moment that it's horrible, it's also amazing. So the doctor in Tahoe happened to go to UW, and he happened to personally know a neurosurgeon who's the best neurosurgeon in the world for this tumor and this location. It was a meningioma. And he does 350 of these operations a year. And in 20 minutes, we have an appointment 
with the best neurosurgeon in the world. And so we get to UW, and he gives us bad news and good news. The good news is that this is slow growing, and it's not aggressive, and it's been growing for um, probably years. And the bad news is that it's growing um, beneath her optical nerves, which are crossed, and, um, and it has to come out. It has to come out. And so um, we uh, had a, a, a surgery scheduled. There happened to be an opening just a week later, and we got in for surgery at UW. It was a nine-and-a-half-hour surgery. They pop her top off, and they're, they're getting this, this tumor out. And during that nine-and-a-half hours, um, there was about 20 friends and family in the waiting room praying for us and being present and bringing food. And we called it a people-we-love party. While my wife is out, People we love party. Um, she uh, she makes it through the surgery and she can she can barely even talk. She can't walk. She has two hundred stitches and staples going all the way across the top of her head, and um, this was so difficult. She was in the hospital for about five days. Um, she got released and went home, and. Uh, and the following weeks were horrible, really intense pain, right? Like the doctors say, if you snap your femur, that's a pain level of 10. And she's at a 9. And, <laughs> but she starts getting better, and she starts recovering. And on September 13th, we went back down for a follow-up at UW. And we got the very, very best news. The doctor said the surgery was completely successful. All of the tumor was gone. The MRI was clean. They released her to go back to work. They took her off these seizure medicines, which were horrible, have bad side effects. And yesterday, we ran six miles. <laughs> We learned so clearly the value of biblical community. Because in the middle of the very, very worst circumstances, we were loved so well. So well. And we got to see the body of Christ, the church, who God calls the bride. And we saw that the bride is beautiful. She's gorgeous. The church is beautiful. The bride is gorgeous. Uh, this close circle of friends and family immediately did two things for us when we found out about the tumor. They started praying like crazy. And secondly, they started Googling like crazy. Everybody's like, what's a, menin a meningioma and what, what is this? And, and so we have people praying for us and Googling for us. And that's a good thing. You want that. And 
there is really practical support. We didn't cook meals for two months. And these are really simple, small things, people coming by and, and just dropping off a meal and saying, we love you and we're thinking about you was so valuable. In the middle of this, our car broke down. Awesome. <laughs> and a friend loaned us a car. Um, the modern equivalent of foot washing, you know, Jesus washed the disciples' feet, and that was a really disgusting thing. Uh, my wife experienced the modern equivalent of foot washing, and that is, uh, it was about three weeks after her surgery. She still hadn't washed her hair yet, and... Um, a woman in our small group who's a nurse came over and washed Katie's hair. And it was pretty disgusting after surgery. I mean, like, okay, this is a little, maybe to a met TMI, but there were still brain juices, right? It was sick. And she washed her hair. I mean, back in the day when people washed feet, it was disgusting because animals walked in the street. And what does it mean to love somebody, to wash their hair? It was so practical and loving and caring. Uh, People in our small group uh, broke into our house and hid encouragement notes all over. All over. I mean, we're still finding them. It was in the freezer. It was in jacket pockets. They were all over. And, and every once in a while, we'll find one again, and we'll remember that we're loved. People caring for Kai was amazing, my son. Somebody started a GoFundMe account, and 100% of our medical costs are covered. All of it. It turns out brain surgery is kind of expensive. (laughs) Like, who knew? All of our medical costs are covered because because our community who loves us gave. And some people gave a lot, but most of it, it was these little tiny donations of $10 and $20. And this from people who are serving tables for a living, who don't just have a ton of cash. People sacrificially gave on our behalf. And there's encouragement. And we knew that we weren't alone. And this was horrible. It was a horrible summer. And it was an amazing summer. It is such a gift to know that you're loved. It's such a gift. I asked uh, my wife Katie a couple days ago, and it's this very strange kind of dichotomy of this is a major life trauma, and and hopefully, please Lord, the worst thing we ever go through. And at the same time, we somehow managed to thrive and flourish. It felt like our lives were full It was abundance. It felt like flourishing. In the middle of crisis, it was flourishing. And the Hebrew word for peace is called shalom. And I used to think it was this kind of, I used to think peace was kind of like this this serene calm. Just mellow. (laughs) 
And I've learned that the biblical idea of peace or shalom isn't mellow. It's thriving. It's flourishing. It's life springing out of everywhere. It's the picture of a garden. That the idea of peace from the Bible is Eden. Like you saw shalom at Cedar Springs, right? I mean, that's like this thriving place. It's, it's like, it's beautiful, right? You could live there. <laughs> There's flowers popping out of everywhere, right? Does anybody have that? Do you have, maybe it's a grandma with a green thumb, or have you been to some place that's spectacular? Maybe it's the Olympic Peninsula. Has anybody been to a place that was flourishing and thriving? Anybody? Yeah? Okay, that's the picture of God's peace. Not just calm. Not just the absence of conflict, but teeming over with life. And we experienced that in this horrible time. We experienced flourishing and thriving. And so in Matthew 5, 9, when Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, it's not just, and I used to have this, when I heard that verse, I used to think, and I, this was seriously the, the image that I had in my mind. Okay, blessed are the peacemakers. So I need to be the guy when I see two people fighting, right? And they're kind of brawling and duking it out. I need to go in and break it up and you get to your side. And that's what I used to think. <laughs> but blessed are the peacemakers is blessed are the people that help other people thrive and flourish. Blessed are the peacemakers means you're working hard in a community of people to help life come out and there to be thriving. Blessed are the peacemakers is not a solo act like I had in my mind. I used to always think that so I need to be a peacemaker, so I need to go and break up the two dudes who are giving each other bloody lips. It's not it. It means you're working in a community of people to help love, thrive, and flourish. Blessed are the peacemakers. So it's the image of a thriving garden. It's Eden. And the people that were in our small group were peacemakers. They brought thriving and flourishing to our life when it was miserable. In really practical ways. So I want to tell you the secret to a thriving community, and this is really corny, but I'm going to show you anyways. Um, Okay. Um, This is the secret to a thriving community. It's corn. I got this sermon in five minutes when I was running. I told Jason, when we found out about the brain tumor, like Jason had asked me to come, hey, you want to come to to um, Sudden Valley and talk about biblical community, and then we find out about the brain tumor, and I was an inch away from saying, Jason, I'm not going to be able to make it, and then it went from a run, for a run, and there's a field of, of corn, and I got this whole sermon in five minutes. This is the secret to a thriving community, because we recently moved to Ferndale. I've grown up almost all of my life in some suburbia or another, so the Bay Area and then Bellingham, but when we moved to Ferndale, it's a farming community, and we like to run, and when we're running by these fields, I was shocked to learn that corn grows from the ground. 
it doesn't come from the store, <laughs> right? Like, it actually, this stuff comes out of the ground. Did you know that? I didn't know that because I lived in suburbia, right? It's true. <laughs> and what we saw over the period of months watching this bare field be carefully worked by a farmer and tended, and then all of a sudden overnight, it's thriving and flourishing and it's filled. It's an abundance. So this is the secret to a thriving community. I apologize because this is, this is like cheap humor, right? It's corny. I'm sorry. But anyways, it's just kind of fun anyways. Okay, so number one, there's four essentials to this thriving community that we can learn from corn. And the first is this. Thriving community needs seeds. Seeds are miracles. Seeds are miracles. They're small. They're easily overlooked. But they yield huge things. And love requires small acts of service. Small little things. Like somebody just bringing us a meal. It wasn't a big deal. But it was a huge deal. It meant so much. Somebody giving Kai a ride when he needed a ride. It wasn't a big deal, but that was a seed. That was, a, that was an act of love. It was simple. It was practical. It was, it was humble. And seeds, if you want to get a lot of that corn, you plant these teeny little things in the ground. That's what happens. And you can tell I'm not a farmer because I'm not using any of the language, right? I'm totally botching it. But you got to put these small little things in the ground. And listen, small faithfulness over a long period of time leads to a big impact. Can I say that again? Small faithfulness over a long period of time leads to a big impact. Jesus himself modeled humble servants and loving his disciples, right? He washed their feet. If one of his disciples had brain surgery, he would have been in there cleaning his hair. He would have done that. It would have been loving. Jesus put their needs before his. He sacrificed himself. And we have this passage in Galatians 6, 7, and 8 that says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, this he will reap. For the one who sows to his flesh from the flesh will reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. You reap what you sow. And so if you want to have thriving, loving community, you sow good seed. You just love people. And I have bad news for you. It's very difficult, if not impossible, to love people just an hour on Sunday morning looking at the back of somebody's hand and shaking their hand and saying, how's it going? It can't happen if the full extent of your connection to the body of Christ is Sunday morning. You can't sow good seed here. I mean, you can do little things, but it has to be more than that. And this is valuable, but there has to be more than that. And our small group rallied around us and loved us so well, and they were planting good seeds. Second thing, thriving community requires commitment. 
And the farmer is committed to his crop. Through good and bad. It's dedication over time. The crop doesn't grow overnight. It's hard work over a long period of time. And biblical community is not easy. Our small group did not just automatically just kind of come out of the woodwork and, hey, we love you guys. Here's kind of a confession. Our small group was mediocre for about eight months. It was okay. <laughs> the discussions, were, they were all right. <laughs> it was okay. I liked them. It was just okay. There were many weeks where I would show up at small group and I didn't want to go. I'm just being honest with you. And then something clicked. And we started really, really caring for each other. And then tragedy struck. And we are so thankful for our small group. I love them. I love them, and they love us. Peacemakers, when it says, blessed are the peacemakers, these are people who not just one time break up a fight, but are committed to seeking and and working towards thriving community. They're committed. They're going through the long slog. And Jesus spent three and a half years Spent so much time with his disciples, and this was not a group that would naturally associate. I don't think they had, I think there was lots of conflict in this group, right? Because you had the Galilean fishermen, and you had the tax collector on the Galilean fishermen, and they would hate each other, and then you add in the, uh, the zealot who would have hated all of them, and it was not a group that was just kind of lovey-dovey. I think there was lots of conflict, and Jesus was committed There's a woman in our our small group, her name is Amanda, and she gave me permission to share this. She has tried now seven different small groups. (laughs) She's washed out of six of them, and it just wasn't right. The fit wasn't good. And she's on her seventh now, and I want to read to you what she just wrote last Thursday, just a few days ago. Amanda wrote this. Last night, my small group surprised me with a baby shower before group. I've never been thrown a surprise anything. I was immensely touched by their thoughtfulness and love towards my family and excitement over baby Bob. She just calls the baby Bob. Baby Bob. I believe I am finally understanding why small group is a cornerstone to the Christian faith. It's a taste of heaven on earth a place where you aren't alone, a place where you can feel vulnerable yet safe, a place where you are loved without condition. It's a place where I belong. And can't you just see a garden, what she's describing as a garden that's flourishing? And she had to be committed to eventually get to that place. Would you raise your hand if you've been part of a small group and it didn't work out? (laughs) Right? It's just natural. Would you please stick with it? I've had some bad small group experience. I know some of you may have possibly some deep wounds connected with Christian community. And I'm saying, would you please be committed? Please. Because the bride is beautiful. And when you find it, and when it's good, it's great, but it requires commitment. 
And so this is what Galatians 6 says in verse 9. Paul says, let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. And, and listen, I'm not too far off with this, right? Like, the Bible uses the image of, like, gardening and farming for, like, I'm not really far off. You hear that, right? We're going to reap if you don't give up. Don't grow weary. But it's easy to grow weary. I cannot tell you how many times I get done with work and small group is that night, and I go, I don't want to go. And I'm a small group pastor. <laughs> And then I go. And then afterwards, I go, I'm so glad I went. It just happens. It took almost a year for our small group to feel like family. Requires commitment. Third thing, so we say that um, it needs seed. Thriving community needs seed. It needs commitment. Third thing, we say that thriving community is fed by fertilizer. <laughs> Katie and I found out what fertilizes the field because we have a farm right in our backyard, right? <laughs> and we're out there and it's great and we're just enjoying, like we actually have an amazing view. Mount Baker's right there. Twin Sisters are right there. There's the Canadian Coast Ranges up there and we're sitting out there and it's a gorgeous morning and then all of a sudden this tractor shows up with a hose attached to it and it starts spraying. <laughs> And we're so disgusted. I won't tell you what's in there, but you probably know, right? It's disgusting. What are they doing? They're fertilizing. That stuff makes the corn grow. I don't want to gross you out, but this stuff is fed by that stuff. It's kind of fun just checking this thing around. Okay. Um, fertilizer stinks. But somehow it's turned into nourishment. And I'm telling you, the last two months was horrible. It stunk. It was not good. There was so much pain. There were times we were angry. We're angry with each other because we're cabin fevered and we're pent up and we're angry with God because, Lord, why did this happen? And it's not fair. But love perseveres through good times and bad, but it often flourishes in the bad times. It can. And Jesus loved his disciples when they weren't easy to love. They went through really severe trials. There was fertilizer in that field, right? So when John, Jesus gives his new commandment in the upper room, this is the night before he's going to be crucified, and he goes, a new commandment I give you. The context of that is really interesting. Right before he says, a new commandment I give you, he says, hey, Judas, you're going to betray me. And then right after, he says, hey, Peter, you're going to, be, you're going to betray me. So I'm picturing this sandwich cookie, right? Like in the middle is the cream, a new commandment I give you, love one another. But over here is cookie of betrayal, and over here is betrayal, and sandwiched in between that, Jesus says this, a new command I give you, that you love one another as I have loved you, and you'll prove to be my disciples if you love one another. 
his command to love one another was in the reality that this is going to be hard. There's going to be trial. There's going to be suffering. There's going to be fertilizer. (laughs) I learned (laughs) when I was running again on these country roads that fertilizer is mobile and can be transported. This is interesting. (laughs) There is a massive cow farm, and they have a huge detention pond, and it's filled with fertilizer from the cows. And there's a pipe that runs over here across the road, and that gets connected to a hose, and that hose gets sent all the way over to somebody else's field. So this is interesting. The fertilizer in your life can feed somebody else's field. It travels. What we found with Katie's tumor and the trial that she went through that other people grew closer to Christ. I had a friend who texted me and I've been trying to to talk to this guy and to share Christ with him for 20 years. And when he found out about her tumor, he texted me and he said, Brian, he's an atheist and he's, I love him. But he He doesn't believe in God. He says, Brian, tonight I'm getting on my knees and I'm going to pray for Katie. The trial in our life was feeding somebody else's field. That's part of what community is. It's part of what happens. And so in Romans 5, Paul says this, He says, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that's been given to us. And the word produce is connected to harvest, right? To the field. That this fertilizer, it produces good stuff. That the trial in your life can produce good things, but it's in the context of a community of loving people. And we had to invite people in to our suffering. We allowed people in. Katie works at Boundary Bay, and we invited her co-workers at Boundary Bay into our suffering, and they loved us so well even though many of them don't have a relationship with Christ, we invited them in and they cared for us so well and they loved us so well. And the fertilizer that we were producing was feeding their field and they loved us well. And peacemakers do some of their best work in the worst circumstances. Here's the fourth and final thing. Thriving community grows by God's spirit. Thriving community grows by God's spirit. There's only so much a farmer can do. The farmer can put seed in the ground. The farmer can fertilize it. The farmer can till the stuff. And again, I don't know what I'm talking about. But he, there's only so much the farmer can do. But the only reason it grows is because God makes it grow. The farmer cannot Make that seed grow. There's something that's, that the weather is controlled by providence by God. The conditions are controlled by God. We can't force good things to grow. We can do things to favor it. We can get the conditions right. But we need his Holy Spirit 
for love to grow in biblical community. In Galatians 5, and I want you to read this. Most translations will say the fruit of the Spirit is love, but the word also can be the harvest of the Spirit. The harvest of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. The harvest of the Spirit produces good things. And when you invite the Lord into your community, when you invite Him in and where the Spirit is and you allow the Spirit to, to, to lead, the Spirit produces love and joy and peace. The Spirit produces thriving and flourishing. It's the image of a garden. So I want to get really practical. Okay? I want to give you two really practical keys to connecting to a small group and to establishing a thriving community. Really practical. And here is key number one. Clear two hours in your week. Do it. If you want to connect with people, you're going to have to begin by finding some time. So I use Google Calendar, and you're going to have to crowd out some space on your calendar. Find two hours. It might mean you have to, instead of playing on five softball teams, you play on four. Maybe it means instead of, like, uh, running, I don't know, 12 marathons a year, you're running 10. You're going to have to give something up. You might have to give something up that you really, really like. But if you don't find two hours of your week, you'll never be able to commit to a small group. You'll never be able to be in a position where you can connect with people in loving biblical community. So once you've cleared your two hours in your week... The second thing is, show up. (laughs) Do it. (laughs) Show up. On October 5th, at Jason Manning's house, there's going to be an interest meeting for people who want to connect to small group. Show up. There's a sign up back there. Show up. And when you get to small group, show up. Like, bring your whole person there. Bring your story. Show up with who you are. Show up in reality. Don't put the mask on. Show up with your story, with who you are, with your background. Not pretending. Show up. Those two things put you on a path of loving, thriving Biblical community. So I'm going to conclude by reading a passage out of 1 John. I'd like you to close your eyes as I read this, if you could. This is the picture of a garden that's flourishing and thriving. Would you just hear this? Beloved, let us love one another. 
For love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us.